For this one, we're going back into a time machine. The year's 1985. I'm drinking new Coke. I might have uh, Stephen Wright's stand-up one-liners Illmatic. I have a pony in the cassette player. Um, around you were this... listening to Stephen Wright in 1985? Dude, those one-liners, man. You're like, you were comedy woke. What I think I had was probably some Mad Magazines. Yeah. And in those Mad Magazines, or Cracked Magazines, there would have been some Stephen Wright jokes written in them. Oh, does he write for... They would, they had comics, and they yeah. would just like have uh, word bubbles with their jokes. Huh. Um, what else happened in, 19, oh, 1985, dude. This was uh, the year that Michael Jordan was, uh, was voted Rookie of the Year. He started playing for the Chicago Bulls in 84. Yep. Nintendo came out. Huge. Did you get a Nintendo? I did, actually. I remember going to Ikea uh, with my dad to buy an Atari 2600, and then he uh, <laughs> was like, I've heard a lot of cool things about this one. My dad was young, and he was like, you know, do you want this? And I, I, I oh, yeah, I freaked out. I was like, of course I want the Nintendo. Got it. Got Duck Hunt, Gyromite, and um, the karate thing where you only had a dude in a white getup and a guy in a red getup go at it. Kick punch, kick punch. Yeah. That's it. That was the, uh, that was the 1.0 for what later became like Tekken, Street Fighter. PlayStation. I, uh, I used to go to my friend's house that had the Nintendo with Robbie, the robot. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was, was it, I thought it was Gyromite. Uh, that's the game. So Robbie, the robot, had a bunch of little, um, discs and the game was Gyromite. Right, right. Uh, Duck Hunt. So there was a Washington video store in DuPont Circle and that's where we would go and rent all of the VHS tapes that we would watch. And the front of the store had maybe three stalls that uh, had all of the contemporary um, R-rated through G films. And then there was an extensive back room, and you went through a beaded curtain that was like just all hardcore pornography. Sure. <laughs> but uh, they rented Nintendos at this point. You could still... Like, there was that window of time where not everybody had a Nintendo and you would rent the game system for the weekend and they had it up front by the register and there was a junkie that would sit up front and play Duck Hunt. Really? Yeah, and he was in this he was like, Hey come here little man and uh we would like he would like show me how to like point the gun and like kill ducks while my dad uh you know fished through the movies to rent. Interesting. I remember them renting video game uh consoles at one point. That's interesting like yeah. Yeah. So that was just like a, a, brief, world. a brief window of time where like as a little, as a, as a child, you could go to a video store, but video stores also catered to uh, hardcore porn. Yep. Um, audiences. Video games. <laughs> and children's video games. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why not corner the market on everything? Yeah. Pre-GameStop. Pre-GameStop. <laughs> uh, let's see, 1985. Um, by the way, I mean, we'll get, we'll, like, this, we're going to be talking about the movie St. Elmo's Fire. It's good to, good to let him know. <laughs> <laughs> in, in case you guys did, didn't see the, the title of this episode yeah. when you decided to download it. But um, yeah, we're going to talk about St. Elmo's Fire. But before we do that, we're just you know uh, dropping you into the context of the world in which it was created. Mm -hmm. uh, the Unabomber had just blown up his first victim. <laughs> I, and uh, Gorbachev became the leader of the Soviet Union. Right. So... And we're in peak 80s. This peak, is it. the height of it. The height of the 80s. 1985. Yep. Reagan's in charge, killing it. Uh, Republicans are in ascendancy. 
This is like the middle of the the yuppie era. Yeah. Um, white people are still doing coke. A lot of it. They're loving it. Um, then after they get all coked up, they go home, they watch the Cosby show <laughs> and uh, Family Ties. And Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties is uh, is sort of like the image of what a cool teenager is. It's so funny. Reagan had like a groupie-like following. Yeah. You know, among grown white men. People that <laughs> liked him just really liked him. Yeah, yeah. And they would emulate and, him in any way. Uh, Hip to be square would be, you know, uh, that was a song on the radio. I remember and that it, song. Th- this was the time period where it was hip to be square. It was yeah. hip to be a yuppie. Um, and that's why I brought up, uh, like, Alex P. Keaton. Yeah. Michael J. Fox's character on uh, Family Ties is, it's like, wants to be an upwardly mobile banker. Uh, he dresses in navy blue uh, blazers. Yeah, as a, as a kid. As a kid, you know? That's true. No talk about uh, puberty. No talk about having fun, smoking weed. Nothing. Uh, having sex. Nope. It's all about money. Uh, what? Oh, and also, uh, he, Back to the Future came out this yeah, year. Michael Michael J. Fox at, at his peak. In Ascendancy. In Ascendancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rambo 2 came out. First Blood. Sure. Second Blood. Uh, it was Wait, called Rambo First 2, Blood Part 2. Part 2. That was the one when he was in Vietnam. That's right. I watched the shit out of that movie. <laughs> uh <laughs> with the top-loading VCR. Yeah, that movie um, really bummed me out. Yeah, when he buried his uh, his Vietnamese honey in that above-ground clay pot grave. <laughs> totally, because <laughs> what I knew about Vietnam was that I liked Vietnamese food. My parents would take me to eat Vietnamese That's food your, all the time. And you were cultured. In, yeah, I would go to Virginia, and I was like, this pho is delicious, man. Hell yeah. Vietnamese uh, iced coffee, the seven, best. Seven quarter. Oh, that stuff is saccharine sweet. And so when I watched uh, Rambo go back to like kill all these like little Vietnamese people, I was so was really bummed out. Yeah, you know, I liked it when he was going after sheriffs and uh, hiding in the woods in part one. Yeah, it's good to see him go after. Uh, I mean, <laughs> white <laughs> after American, pigs, yeah, white American cops. Yeah, Brian Dennehy's. Oh, and it was Brian Dennehy. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> to, to see him go go after third world peoples, uh, really, it made me sad. Yeah, like twenty five years later, they're probably just as confused as he was. Why, like, why why are you here? Yeah, why? <laughs> right. He's like, and they, yeah, man, they. Why did like, you come back? S- send, sending a shirtless Terminator <laughs> to the jungle with like apparently like a pretty solid learning disability somewhere. <laughs> um, and then Rocky Four came out uh, this year again. The ascendancy of Sly Stallone. Sure. Not even. I mean, he's... This is... No, and this is the movie that really um, made the Russians seem like supervillains. Yeah, it really have, did. You have Drago in there with the with the coolest buzz cut ever. Seriously heightened the Cold War. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Fuck pigs. This is, this is as bad as it gets. This is, as a little kid, you know, this is scary, right? You're like, oh my god, look at these Russians have uh, super technology and steroids. Yeah. Uh, just say no to drugs. And you got fucking Ivan Drago, who's probably Dutch, and then Sylvester Calzone just going <laughs> at it. <laughs> Man. Uh, what else came out? Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which was, I mean, as a, as a kid, I, I was a huge Pee Wee Herman fan. Pee Wee's Playhouse was, like, at the apex then, which is a show which I loved. Uh, the movie was incredible. Tim Burton's first directorial debut. And you can see his, his hands all over that, that movie. Yeah, Pee Wee. Uh, Pee Wee is a movie that made it okay to be an adult with Asperger's and a trust fund. 
They never really, really explained his backstory, but they came with the trust fund was the, was Francis. You think so? Yeah. Fran- you think? Yeah, the guy that had the swimming pool bathtub. Uh huh. Uh huh. I just uh, I I just was wondering how how did Pee Wee afford his place? Who knows, man. His absentee parents just let him uh, build this like amazing Rube Goldberg. I always, I don't, I breakfast. always assumed he was like thirty-eight. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't think he was like a kid by any stretch. No, something so uh, chi- like like adults that are really childlike um, creep me out. Yeah, you know, and and so I don't think it was uh, a big shock when everybody found out that Paul Rubin loved to masturbate in yeah. public theaters. <clears throat> Um, so Pee Pee, <laughs> that was a show. I never really got into Pee Wee. No, 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 no. I found him. Like I said, I found him off-putting. I found him a little scary. Yeah, I could see that. I was more of a Bobcat Goldthwait fan uh, from Police Academy Two. I mean, I was a fan of his as well. I mean, That's. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive, but they're. Um... You were more of a Tackleberry guy. <laughs> <laughs> Who was a Tackleberry guy? Like co- kids that became cops. <laughs> I'd love to interview people like, from the uh, Artland, thirty-something <laughs> cops now. Yeah, be like, how'd you feel about the Police Academy movies? Yeah, like, the only realistic character was Tackleberry. That's why movie was garbage. Yeah, he could be a poster boy for the NRA. Also, dare I say, the ascendance of Steve, the, the two-year, one and a half year long ascendance of Steve Gutenberg. Dude, shout outs to Steve Gutenberg, man. Oh, big fan. If you're listening to this, uh, we, well, I, I loved you in a uh, short circuit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <next>. <laughs> Just part one. Also, Cocoon. <laughs> that came out this year, but I, I missed Cocoon. Also, Three Men and a Little Lady, which I think you know couldn't have been far behind. It was a great movie. I enjoyed it. Yeah. The second one, not as much. The first one was good. Well, in the second one, it's like a young, it's a precocious young lady. Right. Right? Three Men and a Little Lady. I like it when it's a baby. Sure. Everything's better with a baby. Uh, <laughs> we... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's jump into uh, this movie, man. St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, it took place in Washington, D.C. Right. And it's... Uh, it Specifically came... Georgetown, I think. Yes. So an interesting note about this film is that uh, everybody who was in... Three of the cast members who were in The, the Breakfast Club uh, are in this film. And these two films came out five months apart from one another. Right. Uh, and Wait, the... just three of them? Est- right. Estevez... Ali Sheedy and Judd, Judd Nelson. Nelson. That's it. That's Only it. Those three. Yeah, you're right. But uh, these two films, that these two films are kind of the um, are held up as like the golden era of the Brat Pack right movies. So um, they came out four months apart, but in the Breakfast Club, Emilio Estevez, Judd Nelson, and Ali Sheedy play high school students. Right. And four months later, <laughs> they are at least six years older. Yep. Um, on film. And, I mean, this was just an era where you didn't have to look age-appropriate. I also feel like that's, like, Hollywood's things. Like, I can play anywhere between 18 and 25. So, like, they fit. Yeah. Baby, so, baby-faced Estevez. He, he, was, uh, he was baby-faced. Yeah. Chubby cheeks. So, uh, this movie, uh, St. Elmo's Fire, takes place in 1985, and it is the uh, summer-slash, uh, you know, first-year after college. And I think all these kids went to college together at Georgetown University. Mm-hmm. So that's how, to, that's I guess, where they, how they ended up in D.C. Yeah. Uh, very, I mean, you know, we're from there, so I think they did a pretty good job of capturing uh, 
what DC people, what DC transplants are like, honestly. Just like <laughs> w- overachieving. It's like if the financial district was an actual city. <laughs> And it was revolving around politics. Right, right, right. Less, it's uh, less, less finance bros and more more lawyers and po- and people with political aspirations. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I think it's going to be hard to talk about this movie uh, in terms of sequence of events, um, and that, I don't think that that's that's going to do it justice. It'll just feel like we're gossiping um, a- around the lives of a bunch of young people. Right. Type uh, A personalities for the most part. Yeah. So I wanted to basically talk about it in terms of the different characters. Okay. I thought that that might be a, a good way to look at this. But um, uh, for anybody that hasn't seen it, uh, here's the pitch. Uh, this is a coming-of-age story that uh, follows the lives of seven friends, a group of friends right after college, uh, trying to make their way in the world and become adults or slash start adulting. Right. They are, uh, their personalities are like a mixture of being incredibly childlike. Career driven and pretty immature still. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it's like, imagine little kids wearing their parents' clothes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like parents come home and they see like, they're like five-year-old daughter in like high heels and like giant glasses. Right. (laughs) But at least, but the difference is, is like. These guys are actually taking themselves very seriously. Right. So uh, th- this film is, uh, it's been, I think if you if you read a Vanity Fair review, they'll say it was pretty good. But there's some reviews out there right now that say this is one of the worst films of all time. And uh, there are reasons why it's incredibly bad. Um, one is the, the uh, characters are incredibly unlikable all of them yeah the actors are likable but i don't know if they did a great job acting in this and but the things that I they do there's a lot of room for acting for these, <laughs> these guys in this uh and joel schumacher is uh much better he wrote and directed this co-wrote it and he is um you may know joel schumacher from uh lost boys which is amazing he did Lost Boys, yeah. And uh, Batman, I don't know, Batman Forever. The one where Batman has nipples. The one with George Wallace. <laughs> I think George Wallace was a politician. Yeah. You mean uh, George Clooney? No, no. George Wallace the comedian. Hell yeah. George Wallace the comedian was in it? Yeah. What did he play? He I, he played a bad guy. Yeah, none, there's there's two George Wallaces. Not the governor from Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> the guy that wouldn't let people of color learn. Right, right, right. I was going to say, whoa. Yeah. No, George Wallace the comedian. And this is, like I said, the height of the 80s. So the, the, the yuppie vibe is what it's all about. Yeah, 100%. Some, uh, this movie is devoid of any color. It is... Um, there's a smattering of color. There's like a pitch. It's pretty... It's flavorless yogurt most of the it way was, through. Yeah, it was the basic Hollywood trope of, you know, the... Well, we can talk about all the... We, we can talk about the uh, those characters. Yeah. Um, the, the, br- the brief moments of uh, POC representation right as as we move on but like it's i mean our seven main characters they all look like brock turner um (laughs) that's 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 what i think about when i see them like in the first scene they're going to a hospital together um judd nelson has like suspenders on and a tie a power tie emilio estevez has a bow tie on and they're both name dropping you Uh, know lawyers that they know and politicians that they know very dc uh, yeah, so, so right away, I, I think the, these are like super affluent adults is what I think. And then it's only a little bit later that, that I come discover that they're only 22 years old. Yeah, they're all rich kids that went to Georgetown. So they show up in a hospital because one of them, 
uh, Billy, played by Rob Lowe, has just gotten in a car accident with Wendy, uh, another one of them. So Billy and Wendy were in a car accident. And Wendy is, um, she is played by Maeve Winningham. Yeah, we, we start off and uh, uh, Win Wendy and Billy have been in a car accident. And it's because Billy has been drunk driving. Of course. Which is, I guess, wasn't as big a deal back then as it is now. Like today, it's it, if you get caught drunk driving, that's it, man. It's a wrap. They're going to take your license, um, especially if you get in an accident. It's going to ruin your insurance forever. Well, I mean, he was hauled away in a cop car, so he was arrested. <laughs> and let... Yeah, so we meet him, and he is, uh, at first I thought he was dating Wendy. Right. I thought they were a couple, and then we see him in the ambulance hitting on the nurse. Yeah. Asking her if she believes in premarital sex. Uh, premarital so, sex, is what he asked. Wow, oh, such a scum, already, the first thing I think is like, look at this scumbag. Bingo. And, uh, with his feathered, feathered hair and, uh, earring. He looked like a lost boy. He, you can see... Yeah. That's exactly what I said. I was like, he look, he had that lost boy, like, blush on. Yeah. And just, like, that weirdly effeminate look. That, uh... Just it's glossy. A, a trademark of Joel Schumacher's aesthetic in the That's 80s, real. man. Well, no wonder. Yeah. It so, makes a lot of sense, given his proclivities. So, uh... So, so we have him, and he, uh... And they're totally fine with it. They go, they, they're at the hospital, and Emilio Estevez runs into, uh... Andy McDowell, who was a college student, graduated maybe three years before him, and they'd gone on one date uh, years ago, and he was obsessed over it. So oh, now, had they gone on one date? I didn't even think they did. I thought they just knew each other they, randomly. They went on one date, and they saw Annie Hall together. Oh, right, right. Because Emilio Estevez in this, we find out, is a huge Woody Allen fan, mostly from the poster that's in the apartment. Yeah, he where just, yeah. He lives. Um... Yeah, okay, so so we meet... Billy's, like, probably the most fascinating character in this movie, and this is his first... his introduction at Rob Lowe's character, drunk driving, uh, recklessly endangering the life of his friend, Wendy, who he may be seeing, and then he gets arrested. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they go, they bail him out, and they all proceed to go drinking together yeah. at the bar St. Elmo's. Right. So that's the name of the... The movie, St. Elmo's Fire, is based on this bar where they all hang out. Which is, I'm assuming, their old college bar. Yeah. And uh, have you ever been in a bar like this before? I've actually been to the bar <laughs> that okay. this was all based off of, which you, you may have been as well. It's called the Third Edition in Georgetown. Uh, no, I've never been to a bar that has live saxophone shows. <laughs> ever. I would like, just, that bar looked like my least favorite place. Or like, you know, the, that sort of wedding dancing where you, like, stand behind, like, you all get in a train yeah. and conga around. Yeah. Dude, it's so cringeworthy to just watch these, like, yuppies and, yeah. conga dancing. I mean, that was the most uncomfortable. With sunglasses on at night. Scene I've watched. That, that whole, uh, yeah. And also, bar. the idea of wearing, a, like, a neckties out in public on a Saturday night, or whatever night it is. The Reagan 80s, man. Yeah, man. Uh, <clears throat> businessman chic. Honestly, those, those people exist. Well, I wonder if if uh, they this, did at least back then. If people actually dress like this, or if this is just Joel Schumacher's conception of how people dress. I honestly feel like they, there was a lot of kids that dressed like that in the eighties. Yeah, yeah, especially the types of people that were you know in those in those fields in right. that city. Yes. So uh, so we meet um, 
we meet Emilio Estevez in the first scene, and he's got that red bow tie on. Well, but, suspenders. And we, and after I, but then I think uh, I realize that this isn't how he chooses to dress. This is in fact his uniform for work. Yep. Because he's a waiter at Saint Elmo's Fire. Right. Yeah. Now I understand. Like I have friends that are bartenders, and I've uh-huh. gone and like I go, I'll go hang out at their bar, especially if it's a divey bar yeah. and it's not full. But would you want? Like, I know working in service industry, when it, like, I worked at Johnny Rockets, I hated, in Georgetown. Yeah, which is so circle. Right. Yeah. I, I, I know a lot of these uh, locations because I worked on M, M Street, right, where it intersected with mm-hmm. Wisconsin Avenue. But I hated it when friends would come to, like, where I was working. Yeah, because you're working. Yeah, man. That's not time to hang out. Right, Every, everyone's coming to your office doing coke. Yeah, fucking drinking, you're just having fun, and you're sitting there and you can't go anywhere. Yeah, it's being weird. It's like caged, uh, caged heat. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's like it's like a, it, all the other dogs are out there just uh, free range roaming, sniffing butts, sniffing butts, and you're uh, you're chained to the stake. You can't go anywhere. Nope. Yeah, so uh, so that sucks for Emilio Estevez that he's got to work at this at this bar that they're all at. Um, I think it's a form of sadism on the part of his friends to come and enjoy themselves when he's on the clock. Interesting. I don't think I saw it that way, but I can see why you you would draw those lines. Yep. Um. So, uh, what are your thoughts about Emilio's character? I didn't understand, uh, the absolute obsession with that woman, with Andy McDowell's character. I mean, she's obviously a very, very pretty... Uh, doctor. Right, great curls. But it got real weird real fast. And, uh, uh, yeah. He went out of his, I mean, it was, it was, you know. Dude, I wanted to like him, because he seemed like he was the hard-working one. Uh, right at the beginning, everyone else, uh, is, uh, either has internships, or they're writing, or, uh, they have jobs at banks, yeah. and you see that he's waiting tables. He's waiting tables to go before, he's in law school. Well, he wants to, he's gonna go to law school. Oh, I thought he was in, and then doing it. Right, right. right. Uh, I think so he want, his he was, aspirations are to go to law school. He was probably trying to hold on to a little piece of college and kept the same job he had in college. Mm-hmm. I respect service industry people. And, uh, right. And he... Tremendously. You know, but but I do feel like I wonder what tension there is if you're the guy who's sort of got um, a service industry job and all of the people around you are hustling. Yeah. No, I know. I know what that's like. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, comedy's kept me out of um, kept me out of those competitions. Hasn't kept a lot of people though. <laughs> um, I think that yeah, you kind of want. I mean, he's not dislike or unlikable. He's just uh, no. He seems normal, and then he just kind of flies off the handle. And then what happens? So yeah. Like, at the beginning of this film, I, I'm thinking he's the most normal character. Yeah. And then he goes into, like, full-blown obsession mode. Creepy. Right? Yeah. And then he ends up visiting Cockblock Manor <laughs> in the hills to sort of disrupt her date. And he doesn't even know why she's out there. He, drove, he drives a LeBaron. Which, by the way, not to cut too far into it, that was, the, that was probably the most 80s scene in that movie when he fist pumps in, in a convertible LeBaron on a ski slope. Yeah, so you went right. You went directly to the end of uh, his arc. <laughs> I did because this movie is like there's we can. I mean, we, are we going to pick? You know, well, I just wanted to talk about him. Uh, like, oh, what are all the different creepy things that he's done? So he um, he rides his bicycle in the rain. 
uh, yeah, to a, a fancy party that she's at. Um, he shows up at the party dripping wet, and we see it from his point of view, so you can see how insane uh, he is based on the reactions of all the actors yeah. who see that. And you're, I'm like, dude, you went to college, man. Like, you, you don't You've understand. You've met girls before. Yeah. You've, you you, you had four years of training. Um, standing outside of her apartment on a, on a payphone. Uh-huh. Uh, what else did he do? He He's asking Jimmy Moore's character for advice on what wines to get. She gives him a list of very expensive French wines, and yeah. he tries to buy out two tables. He basically lies about what he does to this one, just to impress her. Yeah. So he's just living a lie. He becomes insane. Very quickly. Yes. Uh, he, sm- he smells her pillow. Oh, yeah. She takes him... Now, here's the thing that uh, I don't know if a woman would do today, but a- Annie McDowell's character um, entertains his lunacy. She's like, yeah, man, totally. Here, come back to my place, and I'm going to uh, sort of try to get you to, to not like me. I'm, I'm going to get you to be disgusted with me. I'm going to show you how messy... My bet is... She obviously just doesn't give a shit about him. Right, right. But, but today... She's showing him the real her. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but uh, I don't know, man. Today, if somebody was like fixated on you, would you... Uh, a, let them know where you live, and then B, let them into your apartment? Uh, not right out the gate, no. No, man. She's uh, she's she's doing things that um you know you don't. I would never train my daughter to do. She do. She does things that uh, you know, play dates like, you know, elementary school play dates. Do it's like oh we're friends. Come over to my house. Call my parents. Um, the I think the craziest thing he does, uh, he does he does two crazy things. But the first one is that he works for a Korean gangster, Mr. Kim. Right. And Mr. Kim has a mansion. Mm-hmm. Uh. Also, th- this seems like it could be like a screwball comedy when you say it that way. Like, he works for a Korean gangster. Yeah. But it's played fairly straight, and he uh, throws a huge party. Yeah, I, I found zero humor in, <laughs> no. in this movie. No, on paper, on, on paper, on what's said is, is funny, but it's Sometimes, like yeah. not played... I mean, there's definitely a couple of good lines comedically, but yeah, there's not. Uh, I don't. This is, the movie took itself seriously. Like this is this was a drama, <laughs> all the way across the board, and it's a laughable drama because their problems are so minuscule in comparison well, to anything. It's it's a drama without consequences, though. Correct. So like that that's where there's like a, I feel like a huge tone issue, because the writing if it doesn't have consequences, it's a comedy. Because in comedies, nothing bad happens. It kind of like... Yeah, no repercussions. There's no repercussions. In this, there are no repercussions. So there's literally no stakes, which makes it the worst drama possible. Yeah. Because in a drama, you need to have things happen. I mean... So like, if he... Like, let's say, you know, if you're going to play a scene where somebody throws a party in a gangster's house, well, somebody should get murdered. Or Or at least lose a pinky. Yeah, something's happening. Uh, and Emilio Estevez throws a party at this guy's house, which could be its own movie altogether. I mean, yeah, in the in the land of affluent white privilege, there are no real <laughs> consequences in America. You're going to be okay one way or the other. And this isn't the first time that one of these dudes has burned Mr. Kim, because Billy is the first guy, Rob Lowe's character is the first guy to get a job with Mr. Kim. Right, he's banging some chick in his hot tub. Right. Home. Man, imagine Vito Corleone coming home after a, a hard day's work. Uh, you know, tr- trying to get Salazzo 
to, to <laughs> and Taglieri to stop yeah. uh, selling Ron in the streets. He's like the weakest gangster of all time. Yeah, and like I, he didn't, I, he didn't I would go to gangster school. I would, no, dude. Who who fears Mr. Kim? Nobody. After Rob, you can literally fuck randos Ron. in his hot tub while he's out of town, <laughs> and then just throw parties at his house. And he comes back and he's cross with you. Yeah, he's not ple- He's not mad. He's just disappointed. He's the wackest gangster. He's, not I only didn't, I didn't he, realize he was a gangster. I thought he was a <laughs> diplomat the whole time. Yeah, he's he, and we don't know what type of gangster. I thought he, he is. looks like he's from Peru. Yeah. Also, he doesn't. Yeah, not Korean looking. No, not even. I, yeah, that was. Bizarre. Get a Korean actor. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess that's a good segue. We can talk, touch on the lack of uh, any sort of diversity in this movie. Right. Uh, it's uh, Well, there, there are th- um, three instances I can think of where you have uh, POCs. I saw one. Uh, so one is Mr. Kim, yep. who is the least Korean Korean and the least gangster gangster. And he's only there uh, as, um, as someone that these kids exploit. So, uh, like, in, in, and Emilio Estevez throws a party in his house... Um, with no consequences, and and uh, affluent kids crash at his house. So when Mr. Kim comes home, these kids have passed out on his staircase. Maybe they're like his little fuckboys, though. That's possible. Schumacher. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know what type of work uh, they were doing mm-hmm. to make that money. Um, we do know that Emilio uh, leaves uh, Washington D.C. Uh, from the party that he's throwing, a la Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. I, I thought of Great Gatsby when I saw this, like him sort of like being aspirational, wanting to be more successful to impress Andy McDowell, including having this party at the mansion. And he then goes, uh, hops in a car he borrows and drives to the mountains. I don't know which mountains these would be near D.C., where it's snowing a foot and, uh, <laughs> and knocks on the cabin door where Andy McDowell is uh, having a romantic weekend with a much older dude. Right. And uh, instead of what that guy could rightfully do, which is shoot Emilio Estevez... Or just kill all of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he invites him in. Sure Andy, Andy and her date invite Emilio in to, to their house to, t- to talk it out. Um, honestly, because it's cold out there. This is. Uh, it feels like maybe is this more progressive conflict resolution than what we have today, or less? Uh, I would say more. Pro- I mean, for that time, let's call it progressive. Well, like this idea that uh, you know somebody, if if today if somebody uh, starts stalking you and your lover, yeah, you would call the cops, um, or you would find ways to uh, get them out of your life. In this uh, film, in this world that Joel Schumacher has written, uh, characters invite in the people they have conflict with and calmly talk them off the ledge. Right. Or try to dissuade them from finding, uh, finding them attractive. You know, I think uh, if I had written this, Andy McDowell would have uh, cursed him out, thrown snowballs at him. Um, the guy would have punched him. Easily. There may have been a brandishing of a weapon. Several weapons, yeah. Yeah. Be it a be it an axe for chopping wood or like a Winchester rifle. A Winchester. Yeah. Um, yeah, th- I mean, that, that wouldn't have played out. I mean, I guess the only reason they actually kept him there was because they were genuinely worried for his safety in the snow and up in a Chrysler LeBaron <laughs> with no snow tires. I was like, man, you don't even have snow tires. So. Yeah, so no consequences for Emilio's stocking. Again, nothing. Uh, and then at the end, he gets a kiss. 
He does. Well, he, he steals a kiss. He steals a kiss. Yeah. Which uh, sounds a lot more romantic. Than actually, like, yeah. basically <clears throat> barrel-hugging and dry-humping uh, someone on your when your par- When your grandparents say, you know, stealing a kiss, it's, uh, you're like, oh, that's how, you know, that's how mom and dad were made. That's like, let me give you a kiss on the cheek, and you turn around and give them a kiss on the mouth. Yeah, yeah. Not, uh, you know, a headlock into a full-on uh, A little stocky, kiss. a little rapey. Uh, don't want to say full-blown rape. No. Nope. Rapey. Ish. Ish. Uh, but the lesson that we get from this, and I think a lesson of the film, is um, oh, is a swing for the fences. Go, go, ho- go big or go home. <laughs> Drive in the snow to uh, the girl you love's uh, yeah. cabin in she, the woods. Because she definitely will not think that that's weird. Don't just uh, disrupt whatever date she's on. Women genu- generally like uh, acts of uh, pathetic desperation. Uh, unwarranted <laughs> acts of pathetic desperation. I mean, I've heard. Again, I've, yeah, I've heard this story. Just um, to drive up to Cockblock Manor and ruin somebody's weekend. <laughs> um, cool. So we got Emilio's character out of the way, right? So let's 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 talk about this. Andrew McCarthy's character, uh, Kevin Dolan's. Yeah, Kevin Dolan's uh, is uh, roommates with Emilio Estevez's character. Yeah. So, uh, Andrew McCarthy plays this guy, and, um, according to trivia, he didn't like to hang out with the rest of the Brat Pack. He would just, uh, put on his Walkman headphones and listen to Bruce Springsteen during, uh, breaks on set. So, antisocial. I guess his intro is, uh, we see him singing soulfully, a la Risky Business. Or, yeah, but, uh, yeah, Aretha Franklin. Yeah, uh, so he's got soul. And playing, playing the bongos fucking poorly. I might add. Right. But, you know. And uh, he, he's living the most bohemian lifestyle. He's got like a... We see that he's got a Mickey Mouse. So. Sure, dude. He's like <laughs> the kid with the English degree from Georgetown. He's like the resident poet laureate of fucking M Street. <laughs> right? There's the Woody Allen poster on his wall. Uh, sure. we, we know he's got taste in movies. Uh, he likes pop culture. You see the Mickey Mouse um, phone that he keeps by his bedside. Right. And um, and he smokes indoors. Mm. He smokes so. all constantly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I was like, "This is the the whitest guy," and uh, I kept thinking, "Man, DC in the middle of the crack era," and uh, we're we're following this self indulgent guy's life. Um, it's a, a big question we have in this movie: is the, is he a closeted homosexual? Correct. Is he gay? And this is kind of could be an interesting storyline, um, also based on Joel Schumacher's private life. You know, it isn't a secret that uh, Joel Schumacher is uh, is a gay man, and having written this, you'd think that he would have a pretty um, interesting exploration of, of uh, homosexuality right. among uh, young men in the 80s. But uh, we see Andrew McCarthy's character, um, as the audience, we can't tell, he seems really sexless. Like, he, he uh, is awkward around ladies. Um, Demi Moore's character uh, propositions him, and uh, he doesn't accept um, and so she, she, she says you're gay and tries to fix uh, Andrew McCarthy up with her next-door neighbor. With her massively gay stereotype next-door neighbor, who she <laughs> knocks on his door and he comes out drinking a strawberry daiquiri. Ron. Ron. Ron drinking the strawberry daiquiri, yes. Yeah. Um, who's also an interior uh, decorator. Of course he is. Because I don't uh, think gay men were allowed to apply for other jobs. I, was that a thing? I mean, I guess it was a thing. I don't know. But um, interior decorating. I think... Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good point to see whether Jill Schu... I, I, I would have been so pleased with this movie, because I, I saw it years ago, or I saw it in pieces, so I didn't pay attention to it. Um, 
Yeah, what was your first experience with this movie? It was fleeting. It was like a Sunday matinee movie, and I watched like part, parts of it when I was like younger, like maybe like 12. Sure. And I couldn't grasp, couldn't really wrap my head around it, so it just wasn't for me. Um, but You mean you, you, you weren't uh, on the fence as to whether you should go to law school or work at an internship on the Hill? Not even a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I thought it would, I thought for a few minutes there, I was like, if this character turned out to be gay, this is great, because granted being the 80s, no one sort of approached it. You know, like, all, all the gay people were, were stereotypes. Drinking daiquiris, just dancing, being silly and over-the-top flamboyant. Like, I thought it would have been really cool to have this guy actually be gay and be in love with one of the other. Right, right, right. That would have made a much better movie. And I thought it would have been, per- like, I guess that you couldn't really do that back then. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, yeah, it would have, I mean, it would have been a serious drama. Yeah. If, if, he had, if he'd been the... Uh, the wedge between Ali Sheedy and Judd Nelson's characters because he, he was fiending for some of that uh, young Republican. Exactly. Or any one of the other ones. And I didn't, I just, I thought it would have been more interesting. Um, yeah. So, uh, so he doesn't know. He's, he's, uh, we don't know either. We don't know. We're, he knows he's not gay. Yeah, yeah. But as the audience, we're, we're still on the fence. And the whole time, um, he's a creep. He, like, lurks outside of bars in Georgetown and uh, talks to to a wise old black uh, prostitute. Another Hollywood trope. Yes, yes. She is a she's a, a wise black woman. Yes, <laughs> impoverished yeah. black lady. It is the the magical Negro trope um, where she can see him better than he can see himself, and just she, just at first glance. Yeah, read right into him. She's like, I thought you were gay. Yeah. He's like, what? And she's like, I can tell, honey. Um, so she's they dressed like Michael Jackson in Thriller. Uh huh. Uh-huh. She's also the mom from Friday. Cool leather jacket. Yeah. Uh, but we find out that actually he's not gay. He's just been pining for Ali Sheedy the whole time. Right. Who is uh, in a long-term monogamous relationship in, with John Engaged Hirsch. to be engaged. Engaged, to a, yes. <laughs> to a type A douchebaggy philanderer. Yes, yeah. But, you know, uh, I would have... She's okay with him being a Republican. I Which thought is, he, we know he was the head of the Democratic. Yeah, so Judd Council, Nelson, and then he what, takes a job for a Republican congressman. That's right. That's right. That's what happens. And um, I thought right there, like I would, I don't think I would ever date somebody who was uh, the opposite political persuasion. You don't want a John Oliver. It. What about no. what about think about that? He's pretty left wing, and then you get you know uh, what's his name, James Carville, who's dated to a very staunch Republican. He's well, it really he's I, the raging Cajun. I mean, uh, I, I guess Clinton's elected. I guess if you th- if you value like there are things that I value like uh, ra- like racial integration, yeah, um, you know, uh, harmony, um, social justice. So like, if I was dating like a Republican woman, I'd have to be okay with her like wanting to turn back the clock to like slavery. <laughs> like, isn't that? I mean, that's what Republicans want, right? They want like, would, a separate yeah. white state. They want, they, yeah, they want a separate <laughs> white state, and they want church and g- g- government. <laughs> Merged, yeah, together, right? And they're like they're counting down for like uh, like but, the uh, Jewish apocalypse. Like they want the rapture to happen yep. sometime soon. Oh, that's the best part. <laughs> the evangelicals love that stuff. So I don't know if I could date someone who uh, who li- who ascribes to that worldview or wants to be in politics and implement policies that are going to like have long term negative effects on. Um, yeah, I feel like if you don't believe in evolution, you should just get on a boat <laughs> and go fly off the edge of the earth. Yeah, so I couldn't, you know, I couldn't date someone who at at some point, if they said, you know, by the way, now I am a um, NRA supporting libertarian, and that's just like how it's going to be, 
but we started dating when they were like in the DSA. It would feel like a bait and switch, and it might be the end of our relationship. I could see that easily. So, I mean, him uh, becoming a turncoat and flip-flopping from the Democratic For Party. more money to... and more career advancements. Just shows you he's a fucking sellout. Yeah, he's a sellout, but also, like, she is weak-willed. Or has no integrity she... for following along with his dreams. Like, yeah, but I she doesn't, doesn't want to marry him. Too. Yeah, she's... They suck, collectively. Um, but uh, the biggest piece of shit in all of this is Andrew McCarthy for being a bottom feeder who's, like, helicoptering around... This couple waiting, pretending to be friends with both of them, waiting to swoop in and steal Ali Sheedy. Oh, I didn't see it that way. I just don't think the presenta- the, the situation ever presented itself where he could, you know, fess up until he kind of got some balls. That was his character arc, basically. Right. So, so you, you think that, was he actually friends with, like, like this idea that he, he, he's kind of in the friend zone with both of them in that he's not being his authentic self. I mean, I also feel like friends in college, like, there's a, for sure, the fact that, you know, what he does as a writer and his cynicism and, you know, outlying whatever, versus Judd Nelson's, because Judd Nelson in 10 years would be a very unlikable human being, and the the movie continued, like, if that character continued to exist, like, they would never be friends. Like, you you might be cool with somebody in college. I was friends with kids in fucking high school that I would never be friends with now. Yeah, yeah. Same difference, dude. These some are, guys these are, that like they're, they're baby adults. Man. Some guys that liked uh, Tackleberry from Police Academy. Sure, dude. Now we're fucking Virginia State Troopers or fucking <laughs> you know whatever. Yeah. So the reason the people at the cops have to wear cameras. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, like I just feel like you know they're like they're they're, they're all going to outgrow each other. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I just think it's it's uh, sooner rather than later. There's something uh, slimy, so slimy about hanging out with a couple, just waiting for your opportunity to, to like uh, poach. Yeah, and I think it's slimy for them to feel that he's completely non-threatening in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I think it's just a slimeball convention. That's right. They should have. Uh, yeah. Right, yeah. Ju- Judge should not have seen him as a uh, like a, a eunuch. Every friend. man is a th- I was just ca- I compared his character to fucking that character from Game of Thrones, bald headed one. <laughs> Varys. Yeah, Varys. <laughs> my I said it out loud, and someone was like, "I don't know who that is." That's very. Yeah. That's. I get it. I get yeah. It. No, you yeah. do. And I was going to mention. So Andrew McCarthy <laughs> was the varies of yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, this. Looks like like not not nearly as intelligent. Yeah. Um, or like a little finger. If yeah, if if, if varies was a bard, yeah. a traveling minstrel, <laughs> as opposed to like a a calculated consigliere. Yeah. So he. Um, uh, but he weasels his way in. Weasels his way in. Point of weakness. He comes over when she realizes. You know, and Judd Nelson basically tells. Andrew McCarthy, every time he cheats on her and how, how, how he's been doing it relentlessly. Uh, that's another Judd Nelson movie, by the way. Relentless. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, he was great in uh, New Jack City. That's my, that's my favorite Judd Nelson role. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, McCarthy professes his love. She finds pictures, which is super creepy. Like, just a thousand fucking Polaroids of her just, like, living her life. Yeah, so we're learning, like, another message that Joel Schumacher's giving us is that, like, being a stalker and obsessive is okay. We see that with Emilio, and now we're seeing that with Andrew McCarthy hoarding photos of one of his supposed friends. They end up sleeping together, and uh, he thinks it's more than it is. I mean, oh, clearly, yeah. it's, clearly it's a rebound. Like, you break up with someone, the next person that you sleep with, it's uh, it's not going to work out. Right. You know, it's... Uh, it never does. It's basically, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the, the golden parachute. The, uh, it's the eject button. Uh, either, yeah. I mean, it, it can work out. 
I've seen it work out, but you know, you never know. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it. Right, right. You also you have to give the person who just got out of the long term relationship uh, enough space. Yeah, like to you know, uh, six like, months to a year. You know, find their personality again. Yeah, you can't you can't hop from uh, one um, uh, situation of captivity into another uh, situation of. Your uh, mind cap- is not clear. Right, right, right. Exactly. That's how I look at relationships. So again, twenty-two-year-old situations. Bingo, rookie. These are all rookies. They're all. Yeah. They're all. These are all rookie mistakes. They didn't mm-hmm. keep their eye on the ball. They didn't follow it into the glove. So anyway, he sleeps with uh, Ali Sheeta. They sleep with each other. She's in a time of need. He's in, you know, a time of uh, unbridled honesty because he can tell her how she fe- how he feels. Judd Nelson comes over, thinks he's fucking a fat girl. Ends up that Ali Sheedy cripples their friendship for. What looks like two or three days. Uh, uh, he almost murders him. This movie's ridiculous. Uh, uh, and this is another. To- this is another like tonal issue without consequences, and it would fit perfectly into a comedy. Is uh, Judd Nelson is so angry at Andrew McCarthy that he holds him over a fire escape by his ankles. Yes, but it's played uh, straight. Yet there are no stakes. Like we know that he's not going to murder him, and also. When Andrew McCarthy gets pulled back up onto the fire escape, he's not upset that his life was threatened. No, I would have tried to murder that guy immediately. Yeah. Like, you tried to kill me once, <laughs> threaten my life. Like, Yeah, going it's not going to happen again. I'm never going to turn my back on you now. I have to murder you. What was Rob Lowe's line? He said something. He looks up from the Amico truck. He's like, that's hard, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, to wrap up everything with Andrew McCarthy uh, and this love triangle with Judd Nelson and Ali Sheedy, uh, we find out that Andrew McCarthy isn't gay. Whew, what a relief. Thank God. Um, and uh, they all end up being friends again, um, even though Judd Nelson was a serial philanderer yeah. who was banging everything that wasn't his wife, or not wife, but right. fiancé. And, um, and Andrew McCarthy, they, they, they reconcile. But it, they reconcile within what seems to be like 15, 15 minutes. Yeah, like, a, like over the course of several strenuous hours, it's they a, work out three three different people's uh, relationships. It's got like it's it's got sitcom logic. Yeah. Where at the end of the episode, everything is the same as it was before. Yeah. So um, so that's him. Um, a much more interesting character is uh, a young pre superstar Demi Moore. Right. Yeah, and uh, actually, when she showed up on set. Um, she was, uh, she was using drugs. She was, um, a party girl, kind of like her character in this. Yeah. And Joel Schumacher sent her to rehab. Oh, he did? Yeah, he said, you can't be in this unless you go to rehab first. So she was, um, on the straight and narrow with a clean nose during the making of this movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, she, she, that's interesting. She played it well. Yeah, man. So, uh, so Demi Moore's character, uh, Jules. Yes. Um, is uh, a free spirit in some ways. She, uh, it looks like she would be willing to sleep with any of the guys who um, she's friends with in the circle. Seems like it. Which is a great way to uh, uh, just blow up a group of friends. Correct. Uh, <laughs> is to be sexually available to all of them uh, without, you know, first making sure that everybody else was a, was as much of a free spirit as you are. Now, is this is she sexually liberated or is she just a bad person? 
I uh, am not going to say that she's a bad person. No, she's not. I do think that um, she is uh, a hot mess in this. Yep. She works at a bank. We see her at the beginning, and it, she may have her life together. Uh, at first, I think that maybe she's just um, like a type A, like uh, works hard, parties hard. But we see that she's living on credit, which is another um, aspect of the 80s. Mm. It was the explosion of the credit card industry. Yeah, the de- deregulation of the lenders. Basically. Yeah. Uh, people living in Reagan. debt, man. Yep. Uh, and like I think about like the the training I got from like my grandparents, and their idea was that you put money in a bank and you save it, and it accrues interest. And I think somewhere along the way, like the baby boomer generation just made it so that uh, people stopped saving money at all, and it yeah. became um, borrow as much as you possibly can. So she's uh, she's a byproduct of that. Um, she's <laughs> She got that guy, uh, the gay guy Ron, to paint her entire apartment pink. Yeah, with a Billy Joel uh, mural. Super 80s. Yeah. Uh, she loves doing coke. Loves it. And she ends up partying with a bunch of Arabs. Right. In a hotel. And these are like police academy Arabs. <laughs> they are the 80s Arabs. These are like Revenge of the Nerds 1980s. Yeah, everyone yeah. just looks like they just came from like an OPEC meeting. <laughs> <laughs> They're all wearing like the Saudi Arabian uh, head garb. Yep. And I wonder watching MTV. <laughs> would would you be wearing that head garb if you were at home, like in your private residence? You know, I, I always thought that that head garb was just more for like public meetings. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know. You know, but you want to you want to you're you're home. You want to unwind. You want to uh, take off the hijab. Yeah. Uh, or whatever else. Maybe in the presence of women. I don't know. She and she creates some sort of. She's just a big party girl who. You know, is having fun with, again, little to no consequences, borrowing, taking advances on her paychecks, just living, like, willy-nilly, who has, like, a, a inner conflict with her stepmother, who she hates, dying. She calls Judd Nelson while he's in bed with Ali Sheedy to come and uh, pick her up. Save her from the... At era. the hotel. And while, after he comes to the hotel, as a hero, uh, wearing his Superman cape, not really, but, you know... Right. Uh, you know, figuratively. Which uh, is his only sort of... Redeemable quality in this right. whole film. He's he, he's here to help her out, um, but uh, right after he picks her up with Ali Sheedy, knowing full well that that's what he's going to do. Right. Demi Moore uh, propositions him. She's like, "Yo, man, you want to smash? What she's a like, piece of shit!" And then immediately, but things that's the thing about her. It's like it's not even like malicious because eight seconds later she's calling someone else. He's like, "Who are you calling?" She's like, "I'm not wasting all this coke." Right. Like, I'm going. I'm, I'm banging someone. Yeah, someone's getting it tonight. So she's a depressed train wreck, basically, who is having troubles at work, starts sleeping with her boss, doing a bunch of cocaine, lying to her friends about her job status. She had apparently been fired three months before, just kind of faking it. Yeah, these friends are the most forgiving and understanding friends I possible. I don't think they care about each other enough to fucking really give a shit. You think that's they're what so, it is? Absolutely. They're, yeah. so, they're so self-absorbed. Except for her. She's the one that they all kind of like, they don't give a fucking shit about the other one's relationships. They all want to help her because they actually think she might be dying. Yes. So they're not terrible people, but they're not... They just don't... So. I mean, they're 22. How much do you care about somebody else's life that much? Like, you know, like, <laughs> like, like friends from college? Like, come on. You don't want them to die. Yeah, but so... how invested are you, really? She, uh... She does seem like she's the one that hits rock bottom right. in this movie. In a way that uh, is tangible, that I can understand. She has all of her... The debtors come and they take away all of her furniture. Um... 
she locks herself in her apartment. The apartment looks like it's in a, a video, a music video with the curtains billowing in the wind, and the curtains are like a light pastel blue, and the backdrop is um, the hot pink walls. Right. And uh, she, um, they save her. They all rally around to uh, break her out of her apartment. And Rob Lowe's character is the one that reaches her. Yes. Because um, they're the two most flawed and, and you know, real characters in this, I feel like. <laughs> um, which brings us to Rob, Rob Lowe's character, who I think, I think we should end on him, because yeah. he's kind of like the most, the, the, the biggest... Um, he's the most fun to watch. Tornado yeah. of a train wreck. Wrapped in a Tasmanian devil yeah. tattoo. Now, uh, Rob, Rob Lowe's character, I want to make this, like, uh, my my screensaver shot is just him playing saxophone in that banana yellow yeah. uh, Batman tank top. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so did you ever have friends like Rob Lowe? No. No? Nobody had friends like Rob Dude, Lowe. Dude, I feel you? like... Dude, it, it, Rob Lowe is the guy that got as PTSD from college. Yeah. <laughs> like, if some people have uh, flashbacks to Nam, yeah. <laughs> or Iraq, or Afghanistan, but Rob Lowe is having flashbacks to living in this fraternity. Yeah. Like, that was the peak of his life. Yeah. He was Van Wilder in college. He was. And we're like, what happens to Van Wilder when he has to join the real world? And th- this is it, and it's sad. <laughs> it is so sad. So he uh, starts off the movie with a kid and a wife. We know he has those. He's drunk driving. He's mooching off of his friend Wendy, who uh, is a virgin. And he keeps trying to uh, take her virginity. Yeah. Not because he wants to be with her. No. But just, you know, as, a, as another a trophy, another scalp, uh, another yeah. notch. Um... He plays saxophone. It's the weirdest thing ever. It's, uh, who, who plays saxophone? Not Rob him. Rob Lowe. Yeah. And Bill Clinton. Yep. And the guy from the E Street Band. <laughs> he wears sunglasses indoors. Uh, he will go to your family's dinner, and he'll leave the table to go and hang out on the rooftop and scare everyone into thinking he's going to commit suicide by jumping off the roof. He's a real weirdo. Um, at one point in the film, he is in a car with Demi Moore, who's giving him a ride home, and he tries to force himself on her, and we're not going to say, uh, tries to rape her, but we will say his behavior's a little aggressive, a little rapey, and he gets kicked out of the car, and as she's driving away, after making a huge scene and yelling, we see that he is at his, uh, (laughs) his baby mama's house. Yeah. So not only has he, uh... I would say ruined his friendship with the lady. Yeah. But, like, also terrorized the mother of his child by having the spectacle take place in front of the house. Yeah. That's that's so true. Yet, he's the most relatable character in the movie. The most fun to watch. He is the most fun to watch. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's sort of him in a nutshell. And the other thing about him that kind of leads me, like, he didn't, like, he's like, I was thinking about sticking around to be, like, a parent to my daughter, like, on the weekends. She doesn't need that. (laughs) I love that logic. Yeah, I was like, yeah, you know, she probably does. (laughs) Uh, You're not, you're 22. Like, the other thing about this movie at the end of the day, they're fucking, like, 23 years old. 
Like, no, your whole life, you're, you haven't even, your second balls haven't even dropped yet. Yeah, Your man. whole life to live. They, uh... You're all rich. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> they are. They, they all are, um, they have cars. They have, no, but, like, they're not even independently wealthy. They're, like, family wealthy. Like, they all come from, like, that's, it's so obvious that, that that's the case with this movie. And, like, a few of them said so. Like, three of the characters that talk about their parents are all, parents are all rich. Again, that's what leads me to believe that there's zero repercussions for anything they're doing. They're all going to be A-OK because they're basically adult toddlers. Right. So there's just basically there's no stakes in the movie. No. Which is what makes it uh, kind of suck. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's what sucks about this. Right. Um, it's like watching an episode of Girls. It's like, exa- I was just going to say that. It's just like Girls. It's like, I A, don't like any of these people, and B, fuck them. Yeah, uh, they they Their are. Problems are garbage. They are all assholes. I mean, Emilio. <laughs> selfish, uh, selfish assholes. Emilio crashes parties, stalks women. Yeah. And he throws um, parties in his boss's house. And obviously, just can't even comprehend the fact that somebody doesn't want to be with him. Yeah, Andrew steals his best friend's living girlfriend. Yeah, just harbors secret garbage. Uh, Jude serially cheats on his girlfriend. And he's a fucking like. And he's a young Republican. Republican. Yeah. Uh, Mayor uh, takes uh, her dad, who plays Wendy, takes her dad's money and uh, gives it away. Yeah. <laughs> gives it away. Well, just, kitchen. she's like fucking Virgin she's, Robin Hood. Yeah. She... <laughs> Mar is just a cokehead uh, fucking sex pot. Try, tries to sleep with all of her friends' boyfriends. With horrendous spending habits. Uh, Billy uh, almost rapes Demi in a car uh, in front of... Even... You didn't see that, but I, I feel like... I mean, it wasn't great, but I feel like they've been friends long enough where I wouldn't classify... You know, like, I they don't were, think they were really they were trying to rape her, but he wasn't... He, was just, he just couldn't believe that she didn't want to. Right. She right. also, you know, sleeps with everybody. Um, I'm sure they'd slept together in the past at some point. You know, I, don't, I wonder. I wonder. Mm, with everyone watching. I mean, they made out at the bar. Yeah, it's a, it's a little tribe of bonobos, these guys. <laughs> so overall, yeah, they're, they're reprehensible characters that are made likable by the actors that play them. Right. Um, but there are no consequences. Uh, and the movie ends with um, Billy uh, getting on a bus to New York City with nothing but his saxophone. Is that where he's going? After having sympathy sex with Mare, with yeah. Wendy. And... Um, which is just like the the saddest sex. I do not like that. Like I'm gonna give you this gift. Yeah, I just got to be thinking about how awkward that was. <laughs> her eye, her like baby kitten eyes, like couldn't even fully open. Yeah, just weird. He's like, you know, you wanted this. I'm yeah. gonna give it to you one time, and then I'm gonna get on a bus, and you're never gonna see me and again. I'm gonna get on a fucking bus to New York <laughs> from DC, the first Chinatown bus. Also, the first mention of the word brunch. I think that this movie might have invented brunch. Like, you guys want to go get drinks at Seven Fire? No. How about brunch? And oh, Hands. Yeah, at Hands. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you're from D.C., you know Hands is a garbage place you to go the, get yeah. a, a, like, refried potato skins. Hands is where your parents take you when you don't know what food is. <laughs> Hands is like Applebee's without the ambition of being a chain. Correct. No, I think that... You know the other place I saw Hands after years? One in Friendship Heights, one somewhere else in D.C., and then the other one was Penn Station. Yeah. New York. Those are the only places I've ever seen who land. Anyway, yeah. they clearly... The other, the next most hateable thing is they have no appreciation for food. Yeah. <clears throat> so we so we see here... I mean, and all it took... All it took was one summer, or one season, to uh, turn them from, from cool kids that might go to bars to uh, fucking brunching douchebags. That's it. It's... <laughs> 
<laughs> when they said brunch at the end, I was like, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Literally. Like, now I mean, you're the most hateable. This movie uh, did channel all of my hate. It yeah. really was. Uh, it's it's almost like a horror movie. It's like Requiem for a Dream, where you just see um, young people leaving college and becoming the worst, becoming monsters. Yeah, just becoming what you don't want to be. Yeah. And though, it, as though it's inevitable, though, which was what made it really sad. It's a, it's a very um, empty movie. Empty. Hollow is a great ter- way to describe it. I felt nothing except for anger and disdain <laughs> for these people. And I, I don't know whether it's a bias because we grew up in that city and we can kind of see that these people like and like the DC people that come to DC are very much like that. They kind of ruin, ruin well, the town for people. Right after I, I left college, I lived in my parents' basement in DC for about five months, and um, I was 22, and I uh, felt nothing but loathing for all of the other 22 year olds I've met who were coming to DC. Who weren't from the actual city. Yeah, people it's a moving. Huge right. difference. My friends from high school. It was cool to see them, but. Yeah. Most of them were, um, were Sorry, also... Sorry, become them. Yeah, or leaving. Right. Or leaving. Were, most of them left, actually. No, man. We all, we most, all left. Yeah, most of my friends uh, left. They don't live in D.C. anymore. And a couple that do, you know, they're, they're still hanging tough. I mean, there's some but, cool cultural stuff, but honestly, it's an industry town, and if you're not involved in that sort of industry, then why be there? Yeah. Yeah, it was also like the Bush years. So, D.C. Yeah. It was just a lot of young Republicans moving into the city. Yep, that's true. A lot of Judd Nelsons. A lot of Judd Nelsons. Well, uh, so I've never seen uh, St. Elmo's Fire before, and I'm really excited that I did. I was a huge fan of Emilio Estevez and Judd Nelson, and uh, I wanted to see if this was going to be a sequel to The Breakfast Club, and it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'd say if you want to see a movie that sort of encapsulates um, yuppie, affluent white youth culture in the 80s, and you're a fan of Joel Schumacher, check this out. I think if you're over the age of 33, you might get some nostalgic uh, laughs out of it with the feathered hair and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the dress and the music. Um, but yeah, the only good thing about this movie might have been the song. Yeah. <laughs> they, they played ad nauseum throughout the entire film. Dude, uh, and, and for the 80s, I would have, I could, I, there's so much great music that came out around this time period yeah. that could have been in it. They could have used so much. I think they used and, a lot. I think they kind of shot their load with Breakfast Club three months earlier. <laughs> they probably couldn't get the licensing. Yeah, I don't know who was watching this movie, honestly. Uh, I mean, a lot of people out. were watching it. Yeah. I think everyone that went to, like, Holton Arms. <laughs> or, like, St. Albans. <laughs> Bullis. Yeah. We did it. We did it. Uh, there's another one in the can. St. Elmo's Fire. All right. Stay tuned. Check us out next week. Bye. I can see it.